Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Mark Moss, who is the lead author of an article published in the September Critical Care Medicine entitled, Surrogate and Patient Discrepancy Regarding Consent for Critical Care Research. Moss is the Roger S. Mitchell Professor of Medicine and Head of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Colorado Denver and Health Sciences Center in Aurora, Colorado. Additionally, he serves as the Program Director for Education, Training, and Career Development in the Colorado Clinical Translational Science Institute. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Moss. Oh, thanks for including me, Michael. Our pleasure. Uh, so I really enjoyed uh, reading your uh, manuscript that's to be published uh, in Critical Care Medicine. Uh, it raises a lot of uh, interesting implications um, and furthers a lot of interesting implications of surrogate uh, consent uh, processes for critical care research. I was hoping maybe you could begin by um, giving us uh, some of the historical background, what uh, led to an interest on your part in this um, topic, uh, and uh, what went into uh, designing uh, this trial. Sure. So uh, we've been performing critical care research for probably the last 10 or 15 years. And when I moved to the University of Colorado about six years ago now, um, it's interesting how different states and different IRBs um, interpret um, things differently in terms of surrogate consent. And the, the state of Colorado, um, and more specifically the University of Colorado, had um, very different interpretations of the role of surrogate consent um, to the extent that it was felt that patients had to have some perceived benefit from research um, to be involved in a study where surrogate consent was used. And therefore, many observational studies that are important to advance the care of uh, patients in the future um, don't always have a perceived benefit for the patient at hand. And therefore, at the time, um, it was difficult, um, if not impossible, to have observational studies be approved by the Institutional Review Board at the University of Colorado. I mean, I, I realized that before we, uh, before our research team moved from, from Emory to, to Denver. Um, but we thought we'd study it. Um, again, whenever there's a, a situation, you can, you can complain about it or you can try to, um, generate data to, to examine the issue. Um, and that was really what, what got us interested in it. Can I on, just on, clarify? Sure. So that the, the, in Colorado, um, surrogate, surrogate consent processes are, are, not able to be used unless there's benefit for the trial. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So, so the way the way it was perceived um, by our institution institutional review board at the time, and there are, there are other institutional review boards that are, are moving in this direction or, or had moved in this direction at the time, was that to use surrogate consent, so to have someone else consent for a patient, that the study had to have some possible or perceived benefit. For example, if you were going to enroll a patient into a clinical trial, there's the possibility uh, that the patient would receive the, the, the treatment um, as opposed to the placebo. Um, and if that treatment was potentially beneficial, that would be totally fine, that there was some perceived benefit for the patient to be involved in the study. However, if there was a study where you were going to draw blood on a, on a patient who's in the intensive care unit, again, using surrogate consent, 
and you were just going to use that blood and store it away um, and assay things six months later, um, that was actually more difficult to have be approved by the Institutional Review Board at the time. Now, there were ways of doing observational studies um, where if you, and we, we've done this, where we were enrolling patients, again, using in, in the intensive care unit using um, surrogate consent, where we were examining whether they had neuromuscular dysfunction. So we were getting nerve conduction studies and EMGs on patients. The way we could have that be approved by the Institutional Review Board in their interpretation of these um, policies was that we were doing tests on patients that would not normally be done, and that information in that setting, um, such as in finding out that people had a critical illness, polyneuropathy or myopathy, we would then say we were going to inform the physician, let them know about this additional information for their patients, and then the physicians could implement, for example, physical therapy that they might not normally have done. So there were ways to have benefit for patients from an observational study, but it wasn't universal for all observational studies. It's, it's very interesting. You know, I always think of the, the, the this um, idea of the therapeutic um, misconception that patients will enroll in clinical trials because of a misconception that there may be some benefit. Right. Um, and which is quite ethically challenging, and uh, it almost seems as though the, the state, or at least certain IRBs, are taking the, the the stance that unless there's some some potential perceived benefit, surrogate decision making isn't available. It's it's interesting. Uh, I've I've never encountered that type of um, yeah. It, there are other states, um, and there are other institutions um, that kind of attribute that ascribe to that policy. Um, it's, again, it just alludes to the variability of how different um, institutional review boards um, interpret policies sure. um, and how so you, you, certain types of research are allowed to be performed at certain um, medical centers or certain areas, um, and in other areas it's not able to be done. And it's also, you know, as we all know, it's, it's, a, it's a moving target. Um, and, and what is uh, allowed at one point in time is, is um, the interpretations change, um, either become loosened or become more strict um, over, say, over time. That, so that's how we got interested in this area. It was really, um, it, it was something that we were um, wanted to, to see if the literature that existed at the time that showed that there was discrepancies um, between surrogates and patients for clinical trials or hypothetical clinical trials in a critical care setting, um, if that, if those findings extrapolated to observational studies. Yeah, and certainly in, in the world of critical care, it's very difficult to do uh, meaningful research without the, the uh, use of surrogate decision-making. That poses uh, quite a bit of a problem, I suppose. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. And, it, it's interesting, like with most things, the more you read about it, you, you realize that there is a, there's a lot of literature in, in different areas about surrogate consent. The thing that's interesting about the critical care setting is it's, it's a very unique experience where it's the one example where there's often a transient lack of decisional capacity. Um, a lot of the surrogate consent literature that exists deals with um, elderly 
geriatric patients who are developing or have developed dementia, um, which is usually, unfortunately, not reversible. Um, so here's a situation where um, patients, due to their critical illness or due to the sedative agents they're receiving for their critical illness or um, as part of their therapy, um, it's a transient lack of decisional capacity. So you can um, use that from a research advantage to go back and ask people about what they might have thought at that time, realizing what people will answer after undergoing or after being critically ill might not be the same as what they would have said beforehand, but um, it is a unique opportunity where there's this transient lack of decisional capacity often. And you've done some prior research in uh, kind of the look-back uh, um, reconsent process. Is that right in the related to the ARSNET trials? Or? Yeah, we, um, we, we've started to look at that also, Michael, where, um, and, you know, as, as you know, it, it's mandated um, that if somebody is consented into a trial um, or into a, a study using surrogate consent, when that patient um, regains uh, decisional capacity, um, the research team is supposed to then reconsent the patient and make sure that they are interested in continuing to participate in the study. Um, and that's a very uh, nebulous area of, 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 re of uh, understanding of what the reconsent process is. So we, um, our, our research team and Alexander Smart, who's one of our um, senior fellows um, here, uh, it was, it's her project where we, they collected that data as part of the ARDS network to, to look at the reconsent process um, and kind of, number one, how often do patients agree to be reconsented in that situation? Um, and we also looked a little bit at um, how people determine whether the patients regain decisional capacity. In terms of the first thing, um, it's interesting that um, at least in ARDS network studies, the vast majority of patients who are able to reconsent um, do reconsent to the study, um, approximately 99%. Part of that's probably that the study's already been done, so you're really asking people, um, you know, was it okay? Because um, once they regain decisional capacity for those types of interventional trials, there's not a lot that needs to be done after they regain decisional capacity. Um, so you're really asking people, was it okay for their loved one to enroll them? What was interesting from that study is that the way people determine whether someone's de regained decisional capacity is very variable and it's not very standardized. I'm not sure it needs to be, but um, you know, people are using different metrics and different ways to determine if someone's developed or regained their decisional capacity in that setting. And that's something we're going to investigate a little bit more to um, this is part of the ARDS network. There are other longer-term trials or longer-term components of the trials, um, and we're going to get the data to see um, how often people reconsent for that. Based on some of the prior literature um, by Margaret Herridge and her long-term outcome, when she reconsented patients to see if they were willing to be followed for a year or so down the road, um, a higher percentage of people that declined to be involved um, in those longer-term studies, still um, the vast majority agreed to be enrolled into or to continue to be enrolled into those studies. So, so we are looking into the, the reconsent process to try to get a better handle at um, really improving the whole surrogate consent process. Because what we want to try to do
do, and I think what, what the critical care community should want to try to do is to come up with ways to improve the process to decrease the discrepancy between surrogates and patients. So what other uh, research has already been done prior to, to your publication, and um, what has its been, implications been on surrogate uh, consent processes? Sure. There were two studies that were published previously, um, one in CHESS um, and one in intensive care medicine, that used a, a similar um, model where they um, took patients who were recovering from critical illness um, and um, asked the patient separately from the surrogate whether they would have been willing to be enrolled into a study that were, again, clinical trials. Um, and in general, there were, in both of these, again, hypothetical situations, there were fairly high rates of discrepancy between what the patient would have wanted um, and what the uh, surrogate would have thought the patient would have wanted. Um, the, the first study was published actually um, 11 years ago um, and showed discrepancy rates in the you know 30 to 40 percent. Um, so that that was the the, the really the, the first um, look at the accuracy of the surrogate consent process. Um, again, really focusing more on clinical trials and again showing you know discrepancy rates uh, of in the 20 to 25, 30 percent range, depending on how high or low risk the study was. Um, and more recently, um, uh, Gita Mehta from the University of Toronto published a paper in intensive care medicine. Um, where she, um, as part of a real, you know, a, not a hypothetical situation, but um, they um, approached surrogates um, for a variety of different critical care research. Um, and then after that process was over, they um, asked that surrogate why they agreed or did not agree to be enrolled into the study um, to try to get a, a handle of how these surrogates make decisions. Um, and what was interesting, getting back to the point you raised earlier about therapeutic misperception, um, is that when patients, um, or when, I'm sorry, when surrogates agreed to enroll a patient, a loved one, into a critical care research study, the, the major reason they enrolled a patient into the study was for the potential benefit that the study might have. Um, and when patients declined um, enrollment of their loved one into a critical care research study, the, the major reasons they declined were either they were feeling too worried or too anxious to even consider something along a research line, um, which you can understand, uh, you know, their, their, their loved one is now um, acutely ill on a life support system, and they're very worried about the, their outcome, and someone comes along and starts asking about a research protocol they, um, that, that can lead to additional stress to an already stressful situation. And then the other reason, um, based on this one study from Toronto, that people declined um, in, in a surrogate consent situation was concern about the risks of the study. So it seems that, based on that one study, people are making surrogate decision um, decisions based on risk-benefit ratios um, more than um, sort of a um, substituted judgment or best interest for the patient, which is sort of what they're supposed to 
so um, moving forward to uh, to designing your trial, there was was there some feeling that perhaps observational trials would have uh, a different rate of discrepancy than um, uh, clinical trials or randomized controlled trials? Yeah, we thought so, Michael. I, I mean, that's that's why you do the study. You know, you you never know, but we. And the data did turn out to be what we thought going into it. That, um, and again, we just focused on studies of increasing risk, uh, which is interesting. We did not, and probably should in the future, look at um, studies of increasing potential benefit. Um, but we just said we we thought as studies become riskier um, and and having more maybe discomfort. Um, to the patient that um, the patient and surrogate would be, of course, less likely to enro be enrolled or enroll their loved one into the hypothetical studies. And because of that, there would be more, um, more chance for discrepancy between the two. And we were really interested in, in both forms of discrepancy. I'm not sure these are the best terms for the discrepancy. They're, of course, mm -hmm. epidemiological terms, but we were interested in both the, what we call the false positive and the false negative um, enrollment uh, of patients in the studies, one being false positive where the surrogate um, thought the patient would want to be enrolled and they actually didn't, and the false negative where the surrogate did not want to um, excuse me, enroll the patient, but the patient actually would have. So we were really looking at the overall discrepancy, which is just those two things sort of added together, and then individually looking at these false negative and false positive rates. And uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit. I thought it was a, um, a nice section of the paper, uh, kind of describing uh, what the implications of, of each of those, so the false positive and the false negative, uh, what those implications are, both ethically and also for clinical for critical care research. Yes, I, I mean. People, you know, people worry, and, and I think they're, they're right, they worry more about the false positives where the surrogate would enroll the patient and the patient really wouldn't want to. And that, as you alluded to, really um, deals with uh, affecting patient autonomy um, and that someone's making a, the wrong decision for the patient. Um, and that's never something you, you want to do. Um, so, of course, you want to minimize that part of it. I think the what we call the false negative where the patient would have wanted to be enrolled into the study, but the surrogate didn't think they would want to. Um, it also has implications. Number one, it just decreases enrollment rates. Um, and as you know, it's, uh, it's hard to do critical care research at a baseline. This makes it a little bit more difficult. But I think also if those, if, if, if those um, false negative um, enrollments um, are there are some systematic reasons for that, um, then that might uh, lead to inability to generalize the, re the research results. For example, um, if, uh, if husbands are much less likely to enroll their wives, and that's systematic, then, um, and, but the, the, the wives would have wanted to be enrolled, you're, you're going to have much fewer women in that situation be enrolled in research you might not be able to generalize the results of the research to critical care patients who are women or, or other systematic uh, uh, reasons. So um, I don't know if there are systematic reasons for these um, 
these false negative enrollments, as we call them, but but it it has the potential to affect the generalizability of the research results. Perhaps your uh, your example there is actually a plausible one. Yeah, absolutely, it could be. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I you read this and you wonder, well, how how are we gonna how are we gonna move forward? How do we reconcile these discrepancies uh, in and ethically uh, appropriate manner moving forward with critical care research. And I guess, what other research or information do we need to further uh, inform those future um, uh, systematic changes or decisions that we need to make in the future? Sure, I think that's, that's a really important question, Michael. And I think the, what we're going to try to do in the future is, is try to figure out um, sort of, number one, how people make these decisions. Um, and how we can better inform them so that they make more accurate decisions. Again, the goal of this is not to just improve enrollment rates. Um, the goal of this is to decrease the discrepancy. And if we understood a little bit better how surrogates make decisions and how we can better inform them how to make better decisions, um, that would probably improve the process. So the, the first thing we're going to do, and I think it gets back to the study from Toronto, is to try to understand using qualitative measures how people are making these decisions. And then based on those results, there are probably ways to improve the informed consent process, which if you think about it, it's pretty, pretty old-fashioned. Um, I mean, we, we, most people, we do it the same way, the investigator or sometimes research coordinator walks up and starts talking to family members and try to describe what the study is about a little bit and what the um, risks and benefits of the study are and then sit down with uh, very long consent forms usually and kind of go over that with the patient. These, um, these processes can take up to 45 minutes and sometimes an hour and a half to go through the whole process with them. So you just you have to think that there are, are better ways to improve the way we um, conduct the informed consent process, um, so that it really fits the needs of the surrogate, so that the surrogate can give better information um, and make better decisions um, on behalf of the patient. I thought it was interesting that you did um, assess your demographics for prior. Uh, surrogate discussions regarding end-of-life decisions and even medical research, but those those didn't correlate at all with um, a decreasing rate of discrepancy. Is that is that right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We we looked for um, you know risk factors or factors that would um, be associated with either more discrepancy or less discrepancy, and none of the things we looked at in this you know in this first study correlated with any of those. Um, you know, you would have thought if they discussed medical research earlier that that would have improved discrepancy rates. The other thing I think is important about about the demographics, as, as you bring up, is that, you know, the length of the relationship uh, between the patient and the surrogate, um, on average, was 29 years. Um, so, so these people know each other, you know, pretty well. Um, but I... I you know, just because people know each other well, spouses, children, parents, etc., um, doesn't mean they've discussed this area. So, 
So I think at some level, um, sort of the way people are, are raising the um, discussion about end-of-life care um, earlier in the decision process um, for, you know, moving it to outpatient settings, et cetera. I think at some point we need to do a better job of discussing the benefits or potential benefits for society mm -hmm. um, and for patients uh, of, of research. And I don't think as a society, um, meaning critical care medicine, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, or a society in general, I don't think we do a very good job of doing that. So I don't think people are very well informed about why we do medical research, what the importance is, et cetera. Sure. I think with both end-of-life type of decisions and medical research type of decisions, if you come up with uh, uh, almost a, a scale of, you know, one one instance of the scale is, is like yours, of increasing risk and get assess assessment of what types of uh, risks uh, an individual patient is willing to take, but almost begin to validate those tools uh, before um, a patient comes to critical illness. Uh, Absolutely. Interesting, interesting for the future. And again, I think that this research, you know, has, has huge implications because this, this is at, at the forefront or at the core of all of critical care research. So if, if we can improve this pro or you know, all surrogate consent um, related critical care research, which as you alluded to is the majority of what we do is how sick our patients are. Um, but if we can improve this process, that would have a positive benefit on all um, clinical and translational critical care research. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much for uh, for talking. It's really been enjoyable and uh, very enlightening. Sure. Thank you, Michael. Well, this concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes, or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th through 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool, mountainous, subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. Surrender to the charm of Island Live at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org slash congress. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.